Amen. Thank you, Shane. First day of the rest of your lives. That's a good way to look at it. Appreciate that. Well, some of you guys look tired as if you had a busy weekend. I hope I don't see any heads nodding. That don't usually nod, that is. Uh, <clears throat> no new nodders. Well, um, appreciate everybody who invested in our our annual celebration. I was thinking about this morning as I kind of looked across the field, and the football goal is still there, I think, but the um, most of all the games and festivities and so forth have been put away back where they belong, but a lot of people had a lot of fun. I think we had more kids than we had adults, which is a great problem to have, and so we appreciate all those that invested in that time. And uh, really, that is this something that we do as a church. It's kind of it's kind of the culture that we have created through the years of emphasizing fellowship, emphasizing the importance of investing in one another, emphasizing the importance of um, of having fun in the name of Christ, and and rallying families together. You know, kind of keeping an eye on each other's kids as they play on the jungle gym and swing sets and things like that. It's just kind of a culture that we hope because of Christ in us is a reflection of him as we care for one another and love one another and even sing praises around a campfire to him. So we appreciate that. That's always a good time. Um, I was I don't know how many years we've been doing that, but I have missed very, very few. And I don't know for sure that I've missed any, but I'm just going to assume that when I was in college, that I missed, I didn't come back for this. I can't imagine we would, but uh, for every one of them. But it's possible that I haven't missed any. But if I did, very, very few. So it's a it's a beautiful tradition for our church. And by the way, who won the pumpkin contest, decorating contest? Does anybody know? I never heard it announced. Jaden. Oh, good. Sorry, pumpkin. I was hoping you'd win it this year, but. Okay, um, that was corny. Few, just a few little announcements here before I get started. The uh, possibly next week, but sometime this week, we will be blessed with a new roof. We're going to take the old shingles off. We got a crew coming in, take the old shingles off, and putting on a, a charcoal gray-colored metal roof. So um, you can, we can be on the lookout for that. Also. Uh, we will have our traditional Thanksgiving share service, which is always a Sunday after Thanksgiving, which this year is the 26th. That's another kind of a cultural thing that we've created as as our little unique family of God. And it's where we have an opportunity once a year um, just to really concentrate and open the, the, the time up for everyone to express gratitude for what God has done Throughout the year for them. So I want you to uh, begin praying, God, what have you done in my life that needs to be proclaimed among the saints so that we can exalt God and edify the saints with the the wonderful things that you've done in my life. So please be praying about that. It might only be a, a few sentences or a paragraph or an entire testimony. But however, God leads you to uh, exalt him. And he's been doing things in your life that would greatly encourage us. We'd like to know about that. So be thinking about that. And then lastly, 
We are going to do something a little different to begin our services beginning November, the first Sunday in November, which uh, is the 5th, November 5th. And uh, it's, it's an official call to worship. Now, what we generally do, as you saw this morning, is the worship team comes up, usually a lot later than we're supposed to start, and then people arrive a lot later than we're supposed to start. And then even if you got here early, there's a lot of wonderful conversation going on, and we appreciate that. But what that does is a lot of times we are uh, in, well into our time where we're supposed to be focusing on God. You know, there's a transition here, and worship is when we focus on God specifically in praise. We're well into that, and people are still fellowshipping. So we have two different things going on at one time. But what we want to do is kind of create a, a healthier habit. So there's going to be an official call to worship. And uh, some different men um, have been approached about doing that. So I think Corky's going to start us off in November. He will come forward at about 1035. So some of you might have to get up a few minutes earlier to make it here by them. 1035, he's going to give official call to worship. Probably read a scripture too. The team will already be up here and then we will begin. So just trying to create that kind of culture and timeliness and attitude of a transition where we can worship God. So there's the heads up. We got plenty of time to prepare for that. Now, with that said, we are in Matthew chapter six and um, we are doing a sermon series on the one sermon that Jesus preached entitled the Sermon on the Mount. And the reason it's called a sermon on the Mount, very practical reason, because Jesus literally preached this sermon on the side of a mountain. He had many, many followers that had gathered around him because they noticed quickly that there's something very unique about this man. And he performs powerful miracles. And not only that, he just speaks differently than the average rabbi or teacher or holy man or prophet. He speaks with tremendous wisdom and authority. So his words are gripping. His power is gripping. So people are following him by this time of this sermon. Some have already uh, become his official disciples. Others are still thinking about it, perhaps. Who's this guy? What's he all about? I sense something good here. Some of them were thinking, maybe I need to follow him as well. And he takes this opportunity with all of these followers to uh, enter into an official time of sermon giving and teaching. And that's why in verse 5, 5, 6, and 7 are the chapters that cover the sermon. Verse 5, it says he takes a seat. And that was the cue in that culture that he's about to say something very official, kind of like when a pastor comes before the pulpit. I can be speaking out here, but when it's pulpit time, then, you know, you enter into a new phase of worship. So by taking that seat, he's saying what I'm about to communicate to you, it's official. It's very important and you need to hear it. And we've been looking at these words for several months now. Uh, as Jesus speaks from the chair, so to speak. And the main topic is about the kingdom of God. He's teaching those that are interested all about this kingdom that exists. In addition to the kingdom of the world, or what Augustine would say, you have the city of God and the city of man. So he's showing them what it looks like to live in this kingdom that he has come to establish and continues to establish. And he has been teaching us about 
uh, what it looks like to be blessed and what it looks like to be an agent of change and what it looks like to really obey the commands of God. Because by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the, the picture that many of the Jewish leaders, or you might say the Old Testament church, had painted of the king in the kingdom doesn't look much like the picture that Jesus is painting of what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. And so Jesus basically is, uh, you, could, you could call it reviving, uh, restoring. He's re-educating people of what it really means to obey God and to live for God and worship God. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. We, we're being re-educated, reintroduced to what it should have been all along. Because what was there was not even close. And even that which had uh, the proper appearance, as we'll see this morning, underneath that was was off the mark. So a lot of re-educating needed to be done. And we ended chapter 5 with the challenge of uh, not just loving those who love us, loving our brothers and sisters, and then hating our enemy. Jesus says, love your enemy. And that's where we close chapter 5. Now what has been happening here is you realize that Jesus is setting a much higher standard than the picture painted by the leaders. They had brought the kingdom down here to make it manageable, to make it look like they could actually uh, do it perfectly so they could pat themselves on the back. And yet Jesus is just putting it back up, elevating it back up to where it should have been all along. But in doing that, what we realize is that the standard, this high standard of the kingdom that Jesus is explaining for us cannot be attained, at least in perfect in perfection in this age and in this world. There's no way that any one individual can raise themselves up within their own power to attain to the standard that Jesus is setting. And so so we realize that Jesus is trying to show his believers, in essence, you, you can't do it without me. You've got to have kingdom power for kingdom living. However, if the living God has entered into your heart, you have professed Christ and you've devoted your life to Christ, there will be a difference. There will absolutely be some kind of internal change that will result in an external change. That's what Jesus is teaching here. And so you think about the attitude, what it looks like for a citizen of the kingdom to live in this world. And it's this attitude of poverty, spiritual poverty, where we don't barge into the doors of the temple demanding things from God because we realize what for Christ I have no business even breathing another breath. There's spiritual poverty in this attitude of humility and then meekness and then one that wants to keep the peace or make peace as a, as opposed to being contentious. And there's this a new thirst and hunger for righteousness in the things of God. And all of that is a result of the spirit of the living God who has made us new. 
So you will see those things that might start out some some people. It starts out really quickly. And wow, there's just like this sudden transformation. It's very dramatic. Others, it's more of a trickle effect, but it's it's happening and you can see it. And so where there, there once may have been anger and lust that Jesus is talking about lying, where we just don't really mean what we say. And. Um, a vengeance, a vengeful spirit, all of that is slowly disappearing and the attributes and the, and the virtues of God are appearing in us. And that's the idea of the kingdom. We may take a, a few steps backwards. We're not going to do it perfectly, but overall it will be visible. It will be noticeable and we will be able to notice in our own hearts. And so it is this spiritual progress or maybe a non-spiritual progress, but this progress in conforming to righteous ways that Jesus is now going to address. And you got to picture him on that mountainside and he's talking to people who are very interested in what he has to say. And he just set the standard high. And now he's going to talk about that high standard because he's going to say, as you progress in your righteousness, there is a, an inherent potential danger. The progress is wonderful. It's God glorifying, but not necessarily. Because there's a danger here. Ironically, the more righteous we become, the greater the danger becomes. The greater the temptation becomes. It's interesting how we... We begin our Christian lives, or presumably, how ashamed we are of our sin, or even still, all the time we're ashamed of our sin. We don't want to broadcast on the screen all of our wrongdoings. But when we actually start becoming self-controlled and making progress, doing the right things, all of a sudden there's this temptation to display our wonderful, beautiful progress to display this awesome person that I'm becoming. And pride sneaks in there. And it really messes with, with our worship. And with our motives. And with our walk with God. So we have to be on guard. You know, we, we got to expose our sin to even come into the kingdom. We got to be careful about not being too quiet about it. And too prideful as if we're not sinners. But then when we begin to attain a certain level of righteousness, we have to really be careful about what we do with our progress. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about this morning. And the word that we're going to look at is hypocrite. As I thought about it, it kind of reminded me of um, things that I would not want to display. And I thought about, yeah, I wasn't much of a student. I didn't really care about school until actually I got into college. And I would really not care for you to see my jacked up report cards all through, you know, from you know, first grade. I had a pretty good attitude, but then it was downhill ever since then. And uh, but then Bible college, I was a Christian. I cared about my education. I, I learned that actually if you apply yourself and study, it shows in your grades. I never really learned that lesson in school. It pays off. I couldn't even believe that you could get good grades from studying. Now, if you're going to see a report card, that's the one I should post on my Facebook page that I don't have. But you know, it's, it's that kind of attitude. We don't want to broadcast the things, our failures. 
But, man, you, you get an accomplishment and we really want the whole world to see maybe something we thought that we did right or something we did well. So the point is we actually make some spiritual headway. The temptation is to want to display it in the wrong way. And as soon as we some little thing clicks in us or triggers, as soon as we get to this point where we feel that we have to display our righteousness before other people to get a certain feeling or feedback, we've just crossed the line and become a hypocrite. The motive has changed. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So for the first half of chapter 6, Jesus is going to talk about the right way and the wrong way to do things in three specific areas. He's going to talk about the right way and wrong way to give as worship, to pray. We're going to really look at the Lord's Prayer. Very powerful words. We'll spend some time with that. And then also fasting. There's a right way and a wrong way to do that. This morning we're just going to look at giving. So let's read our text in Matthew 6 beginning in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who, is, who sees in secret, will reward you. Now, there's a story of uh, an ancient um, or an Eastern mystic man. You know, in the East, they have a holy men. And they live a life of asceticism. They deny themselves of all the modern conveniences and comforts and live as impoverished as they possibly can, uh, devoted to their God or gods or whatever it is. And there was this Eastern mystic who um, positioned himself on a very, very busy corner in one of the busiest uh, cities in his nation. And every day he would sit there impoverished and covered with ashes to symbolize his devoted life. And one day a tourist came by and saw him. And as a tourist, they're not used to this kind of sight. And they said, uh, do you mind if I take a picture of you? And he said, ah, that would be wonderful. Just first let me rearrange my ashes. <laughs> if we were honest we probably would admit to times where we have been tempted or have indeed rearranged our, our ashes for the cameras, for the public, so to speak, so that they can, we can be seen in the best possible light or at the best, our holiness, our piety, our righteousness can be seen in the best possible light to make that good impression. I've said this before, but I always get a little kick uh, as a pastor when I'm talking to someone and they suddenly find out I'm a pastor and a miraculous transformation takes place. Now, if it's out of respect, I think that's a good thing. 
But most of the time, uh, it is, oops, I didn't realize you were a pastor. All of a sudden, language cleans up. The, the, the dirty stories and jokes and things that they were enjoying telling me, just they're, they're gone. And all of a sudden, a holy person is before me. We like to be seen in a certain light. Jesus is pointing out that this hypocrisy, this, this fakeness, this phoniness is a very real thing among people who call themselves the people of God. So what exactly is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is one who pretends to be something they are not. And it comes from the Greek word that was used in Greek theater. And in Greek theater, you had the actors that would come up on the stage. And I don't know if they didn't have enough actors. It was just the way they did things. But rather than having a, a new actor for every character, the actor would go to the side and pick up a new mask, and put that mask on, and now they were playing the character of the person in the mask. And then they would go and they would get another one. The whole idea is that you're playing the character of someone that you're not. And so it comes from that idea of a, a hypocrite. And here it is not in a good light. It's in the light of basically somebody who is fake, somebody who is phony. It's one thing if you really are that way. But when you're trying to present yourself as something, then you're not. Well, Jesus is just calling this out. And this was a cultural thing. They, they had created them this kind of atmosphere among themselves and among the people that called themselves the people of God. Now, before I go any farther, I just want to kind of state what I hope is the obvious here. But we want to not trip up on things that we don't have to trip up on. And it doesn't mean that if you are practicing your righteousness, that you are a hypocrite. Because you're trying to be holier. That's not the teaching here. In fact, it is important that we practice our righteousness. We want to become more and more righteous. We want to conform to the image of God or we want our lives to look like the law of God which Jesus personified this very very important part of conforming in fact the the uh, very practical apostle John in 1st John 2 28 and 29 he says little children abide in him so that when he appears we have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Practicing righteousness and conforming to the image of God is one of the ways that God has given the church to know if a person has truly had a conversional experience. It's just a practical way of looking and so this, the, the being born again is something that happens in the inner man that, that you cannot see into, but the result of it should absolutely be evident. And he knows that there are going to be people out there who have been uh, heard the gospel, heard about what it means to live for God and not be confident that they're ready for his coming because they don't see the fruit in their lives and they could be questioning themselves. And here we are in the midst of a, a time where we're seeing some things that are pretty unprecedented in our world and in our weather and in our climate and in the wars and the rumors of wars. Not things that haven't happened, but pretty unprecedented and it makes people get a little squirmy. And I think we should be asking ourselves the question, am I ready if Christ were to come back? 
Because we may find that we're just playing games. But where the rubber hits the road. That's what the apostle is addressing. And he says you don't have to be sweating bullets wondering if you're ready. You can know. And one of the ways you can know if your conversion was true is are you conforming to the image of Christ? There is there is a fruit. You'll know them by their fruits, Jesus says. So it's a healthy thing. It's a good thing. We are righteous by proclamation. But now we are to become righteous by practice. So Jesus proclaimed us righteous because we're saved based on his righteousness. And now what he wants us to do, he's cloaked us in it. He gave us that mask or that uniform, if you will. And now he says here, now learn to act like what I've just proclaimed you to be. I proclaim you a servant. I proclaim you a a humble person. Now I want you to learn to walk in humility. I want you to learn to walk in service, in meekness. I want you to learn to thirst after righteousness. So there is a sense in which Christians are acting or trying to act like something they are not. I am trying to become more and more holy. Because I'm not there yet. Now that's, and that's good. That's not a hypocrite. If you're going to be like Jesus, if you've got to, you've got to practice the moves that Jesus makes if you want to be like Jesus. It does take practical practice. The question is, what is the motive behind it? That's what we really want to emphasize is this motive. Because when the motive changes... From wanting to be something that I'm not yet to honor God because I love him because he's my Lord and Savior to not God's glory, but I actually want some glory of my own. We just became like unbelievers. It just it just shifted back to living for self, something beautiful, something with all that potential just shifted back to living for self and loving self. The approval of man is a dangerous thing within the church of God. If I become nail some things, so to speak, to the point where I want to show you all these ribbons of righteousness that I have, my trophies of righteousness and display them before you, I have a problem. Of hypocrisy. When I want my godliness to be rewarded by anyone else than God. And so Jesus, he knows our hearts better than we do. And he issues this warning. And he says, beware, be careful. How many times have you as a parent said to your child, be careful? I'm going to climb that tree. Be careful. Why do you do that? Because you realize you've been there, you've got experience. There's inherent dangers to certain things that we do in life. So if somebody gets their learners, be careful. First time on the road. It's dangerous out there. And Jesus is saying to his people, be careful with this. There is an inherent danger. It's in your heart. You've got to keep an eye on it. Well, what's so dangerous about it? What's so dangerous about it, he says, is that you can lose your heavenly reward. There are people that could go through life, presumably, 
living for the glory of God and get nothing from the kingdom of God in the end. The resulting end of that kind of life. That's how important it is. That's how dangerous it is. Because in the end, all of that could count for nothing. You get nothing from God because you got what you wanted. And what you wanted was the praise of man. He gives us some examples here. And again, the giving, the the praying and the fasting. We'll look at the wrong way to give. The example here. He gives of a hypocrite in verse 2. He said, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Giving alms is a good thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a thing that God requires. It's something that we should all grow in, right? Giving. If we're going to conform to the image of Christ... We want to grow in that area. So you don't just reach a certain spot where you say, I've, I've, uh, I've gotten this high, I'm this generous, and that's all the generous I need to be. It's something we should grow in. It's a wonderful thing. It's a beautiful display. It's a practical thing. But the king of the kingdom says there is a wrong way to do that beautiful thing. And that is by drawing attention to yourself. The wrong way is to make it about you. And some of the scholars say that that some of the uh, Pharisees in that day or religious leaders literally had a little horn that they would blow when they were about to tithe or give to charity. So they would toot their horn. You've heard the expression, boy, she's really tooting her own horn. They're making it about themselves. They're boasting. They're bragging. It's proud. So they would toot the horn to get people's attention as they would Give so that you had an opportunity to watch their incredible display of generosity. Because this wasn't the average generosity. This was very, very righteous. So it was ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, come one, come all. And see this wonderful, dazzling spectacle of generosity that I am about to display before you. Watch how I reach deep into my pockets, deeper than most the average people. And you are in for a special treat as you watch this righteous act that I'm about to perform. Sounds like an exaggeration. That was a little exaggeration, but that is, that's what's behind it. Others say, no, they didn't carry a literal horn. Uh, but there was a horn that they blew in the temple, the courts, when it was um, time for giving. They did have baskets there for alms. And so some of the temple leaders would blow that. And then that was the signal for the hypocrites to put their masks on to come out and make this spectacle of piety. So it was just the idea of pinch yourselves. What you're about to see is real. I'm really this generous, if you can believe it. And I'm about to give applause is appreciated if you feel so desired to do that. And that's the whole idea behind it. And what's really taking place is. They couldn't be more delighted in what themselves could not be more delighted in themselves. And they're supposed to be in a temple of praise. And rather than giving God the praise, they're drawing it to themselves. And Jesus is saying, you're a phony, you're a fake and you need help. That's not at all kingdom living. You need help to see yourself as you really are. Are because you are pretending to be something that you 
are not. So what is the truth? The truth is that they were not giving for the glory of God. And they were not even really giving to the needy to meet that need. They were giving for the praise of men. So Jesus is re-educating them. In the kingdom of God, it's not just the gift that matters. It's the motive behind the gift. In the kingdom of man, uh, a good motive helps. I appreciate a good motive. But if you want to give me $1,000 for my birthday with a bad attitude, I'll take it. That's fine. A better attitude would have been great. But I'll take it. In the kingdom of God, it doesn't work that way. Motive is very important. As a matter of fact, I would go so far to say it is equally, if not more important than the act itself. Why would I say that? Jesus, or God, has been confronting hypocrisy since the very beginning. It is in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it is in the church. And Paul, will, I'll read in a minute, uh, Scripture by Paul who talks about the hypocrisy in the end times. So it's something that we will always struggle with. Well, what's God's attitude? How does he confront it? Here's what he says to the northern kingdom. He sends a southern prophet, Amos, to the northern kingdom. And he is literally speaking the words of God. And he says in Amos 5, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen to them. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And it's like God saying... In order for this to really work the way it was designed to work, your heart has to be in it in the right way. You can't take this beautiful... God wrote the book on how to worship Him. He came up with all the rituals, the sacrifices, the festivals, sing these songs. I like it when you play this way and sing this way for my honor and my glory. Every little minute detail of worship and praise, he wrote it for the purpose of bringing glory to himself. But when you do those same things with an evil, wicked heart, it doesn't have the same effect. It doesn't work. So, yeah, you can do you can bring the the biggest sacrifice. You've been raising it for three years in your pasture. And if your heart's not right. God takes no delight in it. He's saying, basically, get the worship, take all the instruments and go on. That's what it's going to be like. I don't take any delight in that. You, you guys might love great songs and peppy music, but I, I don't want to hear it. That's how important it is for our hearts to be right when we engage in worshiping God. It is not to be just about the, the motions, and it is not to, to turn inward to where we get the delight out of it alone instead of he who has priority. So... Don't get into this habit of looking like you're holy. That's not good enough. I just assume you're not doing it at all. So just quit. Shut it down. And then he says to the southern kingdom through Isaiah, 
similar words. Chapter 1. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I don't delight in the blood of bulls. Who's required of you this trampling of my courts? So he sees it as being trampled on. His system. This, this economy of worship is, is being abused and trampled on. Bring no more vain offerings. It's become an abomination to me. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands, even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. The whole idea of all these details of worship is it's all to be God-exalting. That's the whole purpose of it. God-exalting. And when you turn it in for a, to a way to glorify yourself, it kind of defeats the whole purpose. There's the, the warning. So he, he's not saying, I don't ever want you to come before me again and worship. Go and clean your heart and then come back and I will take delight in it. And Jesus applies this to the New Testament in, Matt, in Mark chapter 7. He says this prophecy in Isaiah... He said, Isaiah said, well, to hypocrites, this people honor me with their lips, but their hearts far from me. In vain do they worship me. So he's taking that ancient thing and he's applying it to his day. The Apostle Paul applies it to our day in 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, teaching of demons through the insincerity or hypocrisy of liars who consciences are seared. So faking it can be dangerous business. God's, God judges hypocrites. It's like crossing over to what Jesus said. Oh, this falseness like false prophets. You're like a wolf in sheep's clothing. So the message there is if, if you're going to make it about yourself... Pull the plug on that. Pull the plug on the on the support system there. On the life support. There's nothing there. It's just dead. Don't try to keep it going without your heart and going through the motion. If your heart's not in it, just pull the plug on it because it's only for your benefit. You know, it makes me wonder what would happen to all the beautiful global charities that we have in our world. What would happen to those if giving was no longer done in great fanfare under the spotlight? If you didn't get the interview, if you didn't get the, the spot on television, if you didn't get the plaques and, and so forth, what would happen? Would giving stop if public recognition stopped? Would, would the cancered, crippled children still be given opportunities to receive the medical treatment that they are hoping for? Would those that are wondering where their next meal would come from still have that that humanitarian truck show up that literally keeps them alive in their time of crises? What effect would it have on the globe if giving was not done in public display? Giving's good, but giving alone doesn't make us good. So Jesus's pronouncement is this. You've received your reward in full. That's what you wanted all along. 
I wasn't in the picture. You got me out of the picture. You received your reward in full. That's, the pra- that's all the praise. That's all the reward you'll ever get. And Kent Hughes says, the truth is this. They were not giving, but buying, and they got what they paid for. The second, the right way to give. That's the wrong way to give. Verse 3. When you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. So obviously, any kind of giving, the culture that should be created with the people of God is that it's, it's low key. Now, God sees it and it's a big deal in the kingdom of God, but among the people, it's low key. And the idea here is that not only should your giving not be a public spectacle so that others see it, but you yourself should not make a big deal out of it either. So you don't give in secret and then walk away with this, this uh, tremendous sense of congratulatory pride within your own heart as if we are something. The idea between the left hand and the right hand is do it. And don't make a big deal out of it. Don't become your own little praise band, so to speak. Don't even give room for you to fall prey to this kind of temptation that is out there. Do it for God and forget it. And what happens? You get rewarded by the king of the kingdom. You know, God delights to reward his people. He loves to reward his people. He loves to give his people good things. In Colossians 3, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's Christ that you're serving. So it's okay to know that God is going to keep his promise and reward us for practicing righteousness and giving our hearts to him. So what do we get? What kind of reward? Well, it's not specifically stated, but in other places of Scripture, the, the remain reward that, God, reward that God gives is himself. You get, you get more of God, so to speak, because you get more of the kingdom. And that's what he explained in the Beatitudes. The more of God we have, the more joy we have, the more peace we have, the more righteousness we have. We know him better, and it makes our heart more uh, filled, wholesome, and content because that's why we were created in the first place, to live for him and love him in that kind of way and live that kind of way. So we get more of God in that sense. But we also might get the reward of watching the effectiveness of our giving. So if you give to the poor and needy, you may have the reward of actually seeing that they're no longer impoverished. Or they won't go to bed hungry that night. That is a very rewarding thing. Or as you invest in the church, you get to literally see people grow in Christ and people come to Christ because of your investment and your efforts. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing to actually watch the kingdom of God grow in your very midst. Or you give to to missions and you see churches planted where there once was not a church. And now there's this community that's praising God where... As before, it was nothing but darkness. Those are very, very rewarding things. So give and give big, but for God and not man.
And I just want to close by saying this, that I, I appreciate uh, what I what I hope and I think is a a healthy atmosphere of giving at New Covenant Fellowship. There's I, to my knowledge, and I've been here a long time. I've never seen given uh, giving done in the sense of under the spotlight and making a big fanfare out of it. The giving that takes place that I have witnessed is secret. As a matter of fact, many people. Um, and I think it's a be- I think it's a biblical culture. I think the spirit of God has created this in us. And most people want to give secretly. And there's an amazing amount of giving that takes place in secret that we never know about. But needs are being made on a very or being met on a very regular basis in this church among the people that are sitting in front of you and behind you and beside you. And you may not even know it. Now, who so so you didn't get to to praise that person, but who is the most delighted when you create that kind of atmosphere? Now, I realize you can't do it completely in secret, because if you come to me and say, hey, I want to give an anonymous anonymous gift, well, then I know about it. So practically speaking, sometimes and of course, the treasurer, if you give a check, she'll know about it. But practically speaking, it is the heart. It's the motive. You do it to please God. Give God the praise because he is the one that has done it in us to begin with. If there's sincerity in our heart, if there's genuineness in our heart, it is because God has given us that. Because God is as real as it gets. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.